and welcome to a spooky edition of Talking Tropes. I'm Hannah. I'm David. Happy Halloween. Uh, we're, we're talking about some spooky Halloween animation today. Uh, specifically the stop-motion-y spooky type of animation. Specifically the Tim Burton slash Henry Selick stop-motion spooky uh, animations that we all know and love. You know, everything from Corpse Bride to Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline, Frankenweenie, you know, we're, we're, we're doing the whole Burton Selick gambit. And I think we want to kind of, in the same way that we did when we talked about puppets and that medium and, and what its purpose is, yeah. to kind of get to the heart of what is stop motion and what's it for and why is it so spooky now because it wasn't always that way in the, in the United States it's so spooky <laughs> I, and I mean I mean I think there's still some stop motion that we see that is not spooky but I I would agree that it's a medium that over time has certainly had a, a spooky drift to it wouldn't you say yeah so I think why don't we start with just the history of of Tim Burton I thought that might be a good place to start okay yeah. Where where does he come from? Did he come from the land of Wonderland? Did he come from the chocolate factory? Where was he? Where is he from? Uh, he's he's just from a place. He uh he he came out of Cal Arts, the California Art College, and he was <laughs> in the same class. This is many of the same classes as Henry Selick, and they came to know each other and respect each other's work, doing spooky stop motion stuff. And Tim Burton's first uh, short film was in stop motion. His his thesis film, Vincent, and it was about a young boy who thought he was Vincent Price, <laughs> and uh, and who tried to you know resurrect the dead and read gothic poetry and did all kinds of spooky Universal monsters movie stuff as Vincent Price. And it was narrated by Vincent Price. Classic. Oh, he shit. He got Vincent Price to narrate? Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he's in California. He's, you know, yeah, at this still. very prestigious school. You know, you just put out a casting call that's like, hey, anybody know Vincent Price? Sorry, I've never been to film school. I don't know how these things work. <laughs> But that was Tim Burton's first foray into stop-motion animation, and he wanted his first live-action film to be a stop-motion animation film. That was the original Frankenweenie back in back in 85. Uh, but uh, he decided for budget reasons that it would be easier to do it in live-action. That is until, you know, almost 30 years later or so, which is when he decided to make Frankenweenie the way it was originally intended uh, as stop-motion. Though it's great, because the original Frankenweenie Weenie features in the stop motion uh, Frank and Weenie, which I always found delightful. In what, what in what way? I missed that. Uh, isn't it the like film that we see? It's it's got like the original like like they watch it at some point or something. Like it's it's that you they watch the film at one point the original Frank and Weenie. Oh, I, I must have missed that. But yes, so you know, boom, he's graduated, he's getting out into the world, making some movies. When do we get to the nightmare before Christmas of it all? Right. Well, I mean, before that, he sort of made a name for himself, Tim Burton, in the world of live action. Yeah. You know, he did Pee Wee's Great Adventure, he did Batman, and then he met up with his old friend Henry Selick and. And said, let's do this animation thing together. I'll produce, you direct, because I don't like interacting with filmmakers on set. <laughs> I'm too shy. I'm too weird. So you handle all that stuff, and I'll just, you know, sketch some 
some uh, ragdoll lady and uh, a boogaboo. Emo shit. And they'll they'll <laughs> do some spooky shit. <laughs> but yeah, so... And Henry Selleck said, sounds great. That was... This was like the one of the first major uh, stop motion films that, that Disney ever produced. It was, you know, pretty huge budget. It was uh, shot on, on film, which, you know, today we think of all stop motion as being sort of a digital filmmaking thing. Right. You know, you take the pictures on a digital camera and then you line them up in the digital camera you can see them right there and you can right. make little animations you know there's even apps that you can download now that can just do that automatically and put up the little onion skin of the previous shot so you can line them up and make it all pretty uh but but back then no you couldn't even see what the shots looked like <laughs> other than just you had to get them developed they, they needed to be yeah they needed to be developed and that took hours <laughs> and that's on top of the just minute tiny details of, of moving things around. So just like a little bit about like the, the process of, of making these figures. They were all hand sculpted. They had head swapping was like the main way that they did like lip flap motion. So that means that they had to produce a different head for every frame of animation that the head could possibly use, which ends up being, you know, a few hundred heads yeah. for, for all the characters. I think it's, uh, I think it's like 800 heads for, for Damn. Jack Skellington. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of different heads. It's a lot of heads. But of course, the weird thing about The Nightmare Before Christmas is it was marketed as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, not as Henry Selleck's. Yeah. So there's an immediate, there's a, there's a rift. <laughs> They continue to work together on several more films, so it can't have been that big of a rift. Uh, I don't think that they actually do work together in any further films after that. Really? Not even on Corpse Bride? No, Corpse Bride did not have uh, Henry Selleck involved, oh. as far as I could tell. Maybe he consulted or something, but I didn't see him on the in the credits. All right. Sorry, Henry Selleck. <laughs> and then Coraline was just Henry Selleck, no Tim Burton whatsoever. And it's interesting because in Coraline you see the cat, which looks almost identical to the cat in the opening scene of uh, of The Nightmare Before Christmas. And it's sort of like, that's his character. I own yeah. this cat. <laughs> <laughs> this is not your cat, Tim. This cat's mine. Um, you know, because black cats are definitely just a thing that, you know, only one person can can have creative control over. <laughs> right. And then, of course, Frank and Weenie's still Tim Burton, but no, Henry Selleck did not work on that one either. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they never... I don't think they ever collaborated again. Maybe there was there was really a rift that formed. I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't tell from interviews whether they hate each other or still respect each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But definitely, you know, the marketing becomes Tim Burton, and then he's, his name sort of becomes synonymous with this style right the new spooky new spooky stop motion animation right but did did do you think that like spooky stop motion existed before tim was there a pre-tim world of spooky stop motion i mean there must have been you know i i don't think there was necessarily a mainstream spooky stop motion pre-tim right it was mostly short films indie films art house stuff um and also you have to you know think about the international cinemas of animation because stop motion has never been a huge part of american animation but it was always huge in germany in uh the, in the czech republic in in the the 
long history of the, the USSR and all of the Eastern Bloc states. <laughs> Lots of history there. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm personally most familiar with uh, Czech animator Jan Svankmeyer, who did an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland that used like little taxidermy animals. Oh, wow. And there's, uh, yeah, so they, they have a lot more history of spookiness and stop motion than than we yeah. do i think in america what, what, what do you what did you most associate stop motion with in films prior to 1993 um i mean probably most people would have said wallace and gromit or you know like right so that's the uk cinemas which is also different yeah they have a totally different style to anything that we have here in fact they're using actual clay or maybe not actual clay but at one point <laughs> it looks like yeah. clay it moves like right. clay um, I was going to say Gumby. Oh, yeah, which Gumby's is the, a big one. You know, so cheap television animation is sort of what we associate stop motion with. That and another kind of cheap television animation, the Rankin-Bass uh, holiday right, specials, exactly. like Rudolph the Red-Nosed yeah. Reindeer. Um, what, are, what are some other ones? Uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, The Year Without a Santa Claus. Uh, is there a Frosty the Snowman one? Maybe there's not. Of course there's a Frosty the Snowman, but that one was not uh, not uh, stop motion. Okay. Well, no, animation. that wasn't Rankin-Bass. Yeah. No, I think it was Rankin-Bass. Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you all know what we're talking about. The shit that ABC Family, or excuse me, Freeform, uh, runs on repeat during the 25 days of Christmas <laughs> constantly. Right. Well, I mean, the, the whole point is that, yeah, if you do stop motion as it's just like you make like five toys and then you kind of jiggle them around while putting different mouths right. on them, it's a pretty cheap way to do a quick uh, one-time special right? because you can reuse all the same figures and swap them out. But it becomes much more expensive when you're doing a feature-length film first of all. Right, not just a 60-minute TV, like, special. Right, and when you actually want them to move and to, to sing and to emote, like, and, uh, like other animation, like cell animation is capable of, then you really have to start breaking out the big bucks. Well, and specifically in a cinematic way, because, you know, the Rankin-Bass characters certainly sing and whatnot, but, you know, it's not... Uh nearly as emotional or dramatic or or boarded necessarily as as this is they don't really change facial expressions they they move their eyebrows and they move their mouths because those are the movable pieces hey, yeah um and even those sometimes look like they're animated in post you know like <laughs> i i don't know how much of that was like on set uh movement i'm i'm pretty sure they did actually have yeah? different mouth like but they're like like stickers almost they just kind of stick them on i would believe that but but i i don't know actually i'd have to look that up no because it definitely does it just goes from o to ah to ah you know like the they yeah. have like the keyframes. you just have a few lip flaps that you can swap out and that's that's what you got but you don't have 800 <laughs> heads to swap right right with d different minute expressions and the in-betweens of all those expressions and like the eyebrows of jack skillington and whatnot <laughs> right yeah so i think I think that there is something kind of spooky about even those Christmas uh, specials. Really? That they are kind of weird to look at and kind of uncomfortable. I don't know if other people feel this way, but it's the jerkiness of the motion, you know? Do you feel like um, stop motion in general kind of lives in the uncanny valley? It, yeah, I, it's not that it's like the uncanny valley between like a cartoony representation and an overly realistic uh, representation, but it's more of the uncanny that, that we did discuss in our uncanny Candy Valley episode, which is like Freud's psychoanalytic conception of the uncanny, right. where it's it's you know something that's in motion but also still, right. and it's 
it's sort of like almost like a reanimated corpse that you're oh, looking oh, at. Oh, a reanimated corpse, you say? How spooky, David. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is um this is a point that's also made by uh, uh Jack Halberstam, who we um we, we cited for our, our Bridezilla uh episode, but I think I might have dead named him, oh. but it's oops. Uh but but yeah, Jack Halberstam wrote this book called The Queer Art of Failure, okay. where he's talking about, you know, trying to take a look at like what is considered low art and art that is like about failure yeah. and sort of reading that through a queer lens, which I found really interesting. Yeah. And what he writes about stop motion is that it's a dynamic between motion and stillness, the dynamic between life and death that is nowhere more dramatically captured than in stop motion. Toys come to life transformed from wooden to animated. Um, and that's sort of like a common theme in gothic literature yeah. as well. You know, Frankenstein, the monster that's made out of different pieces that move independently of each other and that move even though they don't look like they should be able to move. Right. Uh, you know, it's kind of a dead thing. Yeah, like, so there's, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, Jack Halberstam, like, talks about that as well in, in, in other literature that he's written, but, you know, there are many, many critiques of the horror genre in general through a queer lens and just, like, how easy it tends to be to read queerness into uh, characters who are othered and to read queerness into characters uh, and, and, and genres about being monstrous and monstrousness. Um, like, there was a lot of discourse specifically around uh, The Shape of Water and, you know, like, right. all of these women being like, yeah, it's about like straight women kind of being like, yes, it's about taming like a man and knowing that like you can turn the monster into like a, a someone who will love you. And you know, all the queer response to that was just like, what are you talking about? It's about loving and being loved despite the monstrousness. Like I am the monster, you know? Um, So I I think like queerness and horror tend to just go hand in hand to begin with. And I think you're right though, that the uncanny valleyness of it all that is sort of added on top with stop motion is just like another layer for, for these characters. And I think that's also part of why these characters became as popular as they did in the Hot Topic, like, emo scene in the 2000s and whatnot, you know? Right. And, and why why a lot of, like, queer, kind of alty other, like, teenagers went, this is weird and different and makes people uncomfortable in a way that isn't innately about my sexuality. Great! <laughs> right. There's a performance of otherness in Halloween itself. Yeah. And so... It's become increasingly popular in feminist discourses and in queer discourses Mm -hmm. to discuss Halloween and costuming and performance Mm -hmm. and just the rejection of, you know, Christian values through the embrace of demonhood and witchhood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think it's all there, and I think Burton films, especially or or Selleck films, this this sort of spindly form of stop motion character with these grotesque faces and uh, you know fingers like snakes, right. and Spiders in my hair. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it 
it's it's compelling in that sense. Right. And also, of course, the first one that they do has to be Christmas themed because everyone's associations with stop motion are Santa Claus. Right. So Santa Claus shows up in this spooky world that's sort of like a mirror, dark mirror image of the wholesome Christian world of Christmas land. Right. The Halloween town, the town of Halloween is a dark reflection of that. Um, but at the same time, can we read this as kind of a conservative story about how we must keep these things separate, about how there's no room for for an overlap in the the dark and the light? Oh, yeah, it's, it's very much a stay-in-your-lane story. Right. I mean, I've seen some people read it as kind of a story about cultural appropriation, mm. but the issue isn't really that that uh, Jack Skellington wants to embrace the values of Christmas, but the issue is that he embraces the values of Christmas and then all of his followers misunderstand, misinterpret, and misapply and, and try to force their own spooky ideology into Christmas. And so the toys become, you know, tricks right. to, to scare children instead of delights to make children feel joy. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there's room for that interpretation as well. But, but I, I do see it as, as a largely conservative story at the, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean... That, that's always the tension with Tim Burton films that I find, is that he makes pretty conservative films, but he's always has this, like, I'm just, like, a shy weirdo outsider, like, no one could ever understand me kind of vibe, but, like, still a very, like, straight, white, industry-accepted man version of that, um, which I think tends to, to lead to these undertones of, you know, ultimately conservative tales. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would ge generally about all of his films that way. I think a lot of his films sort of resist that kind of interpretation because they're just so surface, you know, like they're they're purely just, we're going to stick a weirdo in suburban America mm -hmm. or in Victorian London and just say what would pe how would people react to this to this weirdo and so it's so surface that it doesn't even invite the under interpretation of oh are we supposed to want this person to exist in this somewhat conservative space or are we supposed to want them to leave because they could never be truly accepted there mm -hmm. you know I, I think that, that that kind of ambiguity is still present there okay. um, I, I, I do want to return to, to Alberstam for a second yeah. because uh, he, he talks specifically about whether or not Coraline could be considered conservative mm. uh, versus whether it's a, a progressive narrative. Yeah. And what, what he says is basically that the, um, the the story is situating everything that's weird about this other world that Coraline, this girl, enters where she meets an other mother and an other father who are weird and upbeat and happy. They're theatrical. There's a big musical performance. There's crazy bugs and monsters and things and the rats talk and mm. whatnot. I don't think the rats actually do talk, but the rats are, are sentient right. and the cat talks but anyway that world the strange world is inherently wrong and then must be kept separate you know uh, he describes it as a, a story about the dangers of a world that is crafted in opposition to the natural world of family and the ordinary you know the the, the, the lesson Coraline has to learn is I need to return to my boring not fulfilling mother because at least 
she's ordinary and not a scary <laughs> spider. spider lady who is seeking to turn me into a monstrous doll human hybrid. Right, right. And so uh, he also says it's uh, stop motion in Coraline is the marker of the unreal, the queer, the monstrously different, and animation opposes the natural. And then and then describes how Coraline becomes sort of less feminist and more you know uh, sort of submits to the role of the dutiful daughter rather than the rebellious daughter by the end. Okay. Even if it is by rebelling against the other mother. <laughs> right. Do you have a different interpretation of the of the film or do you concur with with that one? Yeah, I I you know, this is the first time I'm considering it in that uh specific mindset and I I definitely think it holds water, you know, I don't think it's a misreading by by any stretch. I just don't know if that's like really what it was trying to convey i i certainly think that is a message that someone could take from it though yeah i mean i guess at the end of the day it's sort of a a question that you can ask about all like alice in wonderland narratives right where the fantasy world is alluring but ultimately one must return to the world of the ordinary and the normal there is no ending for the alice in wonderland story where you remain in this queer space of magic and unreason and silliness and goofiness and failure yeah it's uh, yeah these you know portal to another world stories generally they all have the eventual return to normalcy um and i think you know you could argue that that is just kind of like basic storytelling um you know like you start with a character somewhere they go through a journey and then they return having changed well i mean there there's other analyses of story where it's all about thesis antithesis synthesis and there is no there is no real synthesis going on in in Coraline it's just a rejection of the other you know i mean but doesn't she come back you know i i feel like she learns some stuff going through all of that right but what what does she learn other than her wishes her dreams her imaginations of a mother who ca- actually cares for her in the way that she wants her to all of these things were merely deception that they were just the allure of the queer world which must be rejected in favor of the ordinary and the the nuclear family. All right, I can see that. I, I don't know. It's something to consider. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to get to that because we were talking about the conservatism versus non-conservatism yeah. of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. And I think there's some debate for that one as well. You know, there's no easy answer. I think it's harder with Coraline because it is an adaptation of an existing work. Um, so, you know, like we can't put that on Henry Selleck as like, this was Henry Selleck's vision to make this really conservative story, you know. It's about reading the, the, the mode of filmmaking, stop motion itself, yes. as potentially either queer or uncanny or... These kind of things. I do have trouble with that specific analysis, though, just because the whole film is in stop motion. It's not like it goes from live action to stop motion when she crawls through the tunnel. You know, it's stop motion the whole time. Right, but it's stop motion of a very ordinary world versus stop motion of, you know, the, the, the stop motion becoming the film itself that everything moves and everything reacts in, in this weird way. And there's that scene of the uh, the other father who plays piano, but in reality the piano is playing him, right? That is sort of a, a literal interpretation of stop motion where there's these hands, these mechanisms that are unseen that are controlling all of the movements of these figures. I think that's kind of an interesting sort of visual metaphor for what we're seeing And if that is the world of control and the world of restriction and the world of 
being both dead and alive at the same time as visualized by like the button eyes then and then that's the spooky world and the return to the normal world it's mundane it's everything is stillness and there isn't much color or liveliness and there isn't much uh you know incredible stop motion movement but but i can see what you're saying yeah. yeah if the whole medium is supposed to be uncanny then isn't the ordinary world uncanny as well i don't i don't know i mean i think it's it certainly is like obviously the the other world is much more uncanny like certainly agree with you there and much more stop motiony i think is that it's both more uncanny and more animated. I don't know. I think there's... Yeah, I, I don't know if I necessarily... Well, that's that's certainly what, what Halberstam would argue. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just putting that out there. No, yeah, I know. I'm saying I don't necessarily agree based on my recollection of the film. I, 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 I like where he's right. going with, with, with his basic thesis. Right. Um, so after Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, we have, a you know, a few... A few more feature-length mm-hmm. animated films come out before Tim Burton tries again, and you know several more years pass before Henry Selleck tries again. Yeah, James and the Giant Peach. Uh, well, we, or I guess first we have Henry Selleck's next film, which was James and the Giant Peach, which was partially partially stop motion animated, but partially live action. Yeah, I would say definitely the majority is. Um, stop motion and I, I i almost think that the analysis that we were talking about for Coraline holds more water here where you know where he's in the the mundane world it is live action even mm-hmm. though the mundane world holds some spooky monstrous gothic qualities to it to begin with uh but then you know he goes inside a peach and becomes stop motion and like dances around with spiders and whatnot but in this in this way um I would say it resists a a negative reading of that and almost, um, you know, ha- has more of a positive connotation because what he's doing is escaping from a an evil, dull world which, you know, is trying to con- make him conform and make him less than. And he finds acceptance and love and self-confidence in this sort of monstrous stop-motion world. Among insects and spiders right. and nasty things yeah. which should be rejected. Yeah. And I, 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 I wonder about this as well because the the insects, they're all different insects, of course, and they, they sort of have formed this collective um, that can be read kind of as a queer collective. Yeah, very found family. Right, but, but it's... It's it's still I feel like the maybe the style of animation sort of resists it. Maybe the the point is that it creates the you know these these insects move like insects, mm. and maybe that's supposed to be kind of disturbing to us, but also endearing because it's real. Mm-hmm. But you still have this sense that like there's these off screen hands moving each individual piece. It does. It's not a fluid motion of like cell animation where the the artist's pen is completely hidden right uh, by by the movement or or where it's it becomes completely flat and two-dimensional mm-hmm. it's these are physical bodies that are still and moving at the same time yeah and so i wonder if that animation style sort of sort of contradicts the the message of release from control that's an interesting thought um i hadn't considered that then we've got we've got some more ardman pictures films you know the the studio behind wallace and gromit so they did chicken run and Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, both of which are somewhat horror-based, yeah. I would say, if not, you know, spooky-based, Halloween-based. Right. Were-Rabbit, I guess, a little bit more so yeah. than, than Chicken Run. But they're they're both very much... Well, there's some dark moments in Chicken Run. 
<laughs> They're both very scary. But yeah, I guess the idea here, Halverson does reference Chicken Run, that the start-stop motion of the machines, yeah. that they're always, the machines move very fluidly and the the chickens are always in danger of being processed by these machines. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Boss and Gromit, who are inventors, but their machines always end up controlling them. Right. That it becomes sort of a representation of, of capitalism, uh, where the mechanisms that we create end up controlling us yeah. and that the stop motion reflects that as well. I don't know about that that reading particularly either. Um, really? But... I feel like that has, that one feels more compelling to me than um, some of the other arguments. Right. Well, I'm just... Mechanisms, I think, are a big part of a lot of animation. And I don't right. know if they're specific to stop motion in the way that the, the stop motion jerkiness looking like a reanimated corpse, that feels very specific to stop motion to mm-hmm. me which which i guess takes us into our next major film to discuss which is the corpse bride the Corpse Bride. Um, <laughs> do, do you like this film I, I didn't love it when i first watched it i wanted it to be i feel like more feminist than it ended up being <laughs> yeah i mean it's definitely not uh not a feminist work no. i think it in in having this female monstrous body i think Halberstam would have a lot to say about that yeah. um, if he if he revisited the idea of the Bride of Frankenstein, which he talked about a lot in uh, in one of his earlier books. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know what you would say about this movie because it's just ultimately about marriage. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's like it's just a weird rom com with like spooky stuff that happens like i i think i totally agree with you right it's a it's a love triangle yeah. between the living and the dead yeah um you know and it's 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 fine i guess i don't know i don't care about their love triangle at all this, this i don't understand why these women are fighting over this guy he's very dull <laughs> He is dull, uh, but he's rich. Yeah, it doesn't seem worth he's it. He's the nouveau riche in Victorian England. Dull, don't care, not <laughs> interested. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot to say about Corpse Bride. Like, it's... It, really? I, I don't know. It just feels like so... Like, it's a, not an exciting film to me. You know, like, I remember watching it in theaters it's, as it's a kid. It's not exciting, but I think that's worth exploring. Okay. Why is it so... Why is it so dull? Why Why is this, you know, critique not, you know, not working? They're they're trying to do the same thing as, as you know, Edward Scissorhands right. or whatever. Uh, you know, Tim Burton's saying, okay, we're in Victorian London... And we're having this big wedding that's just purely for appearances and for money. It's totally fakey fake wedding. And then we end up mixing the, uh, what is it, the the sacred and the profane? Mm-hmm. Is that the expression? I think so. We're, we're mixing those by having death and skeletons involved with the church and marriage and these things. Yeah. So at one point you have this joke where a skeleton is like going to a wedding in a church and the priest is like, be gone back foul demons. And the skeleton just says, Shh, be quiet. We're in a church, <laughs> you know? So there's something, there's something's going on. Yeah. I mean, I think this is very much like Tim Burton's like classic, like what if there were kooky characters doing a very normal thing? Like, it, you know, it feels very that, but without nearly as much critique as Edward Scissorhands of the, the norm, necessarily. Right. 
of course, there is something kind of fun and, and you know, potentially sort of revolutionary about stories about skeletons, right? Yeah. I mean, skeletons do not present any visible gender. They don't present any visible race. And yet, there's so much gender. But because it's in Victorian London, it, it sort of defaults to, defaults to white and defaults to male when they're wearing male clothes or female where they're wearing female clothes and there's no yeah. real queering of those um, expectations. Yeah, there's there's a lot of potential with skeletons, but Tim Burton is not interested in the queer potential of skeletons. He's interested right. in But the... I think it's also the 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 constitution of the body, right? And the the corpse bride herself, you know, she has a detachable arm, a detachable eye, she's rearrangeable, modifiable. Is that part of her objectification or is that part of her her freedom of expression she's not bound by the corporeal form that we are typically i um you know or the skeletons when you see the skeletons like lifting their heads and placing them on each other's bodies that our bodies are not these sacred vessels you know these sacred things that must be kept whole and always one and never separated or or you know uh, uh what's the word uh, when you chop something off. Oh, uh, dismembered? They should never be dis- dismembered or disembodied, but always kept together and in little boxes. But instead, down there, downstairs in the underworld, uh, everyone is free to just share their body parts around. <laughs> this is the future liberals want! <laughs> Skeleton communism for everyone! <laughs> It's uh, it's pretty good. I don't know. I think that one dance number is probably better than the rest of the movie. Is yeah. the, the backstory of the corpse bride. Yeah, uh, I would agree. Yeah, I don't know. I think... So, like, you know, it's it's only because the corpse bride herself resists her most monstrous qualities and, you know, does try to downplay them and sort of um, is... is almost ashamed of them in certain ways you know like she starts out being like yeah this is just me and this is what it's like and then yeah. you know is sort of like well because he shames her for it exactly but then yeah. eventually he comes around to it and is like i'm just being bigoted against <laughs> dead people in fact i'll kill myself right now uh and i'll marry you because you know but that's the thing is like if it's all in the name of marriage right that's the problem is like if it was just like you know i'm fine just killing myself because i just want to like, that would right. be something else. Or I discovered that I love it down there, and I hate it up here where it's all dim and grim and, and awful right. and restrictive. It's just, it's just sacrifice for monogamous love, which, you know, is pretty, like, straightforward. Right. For eternity, for the, the spirit of of eternal heterosexual devotion. <laughs> right, right. There's something interesting, though, because the marriage, it's it's almost never brought up that, like... The corpse bride presumably cannot have children, yeah. right? Normally the feminine body in horror is always conceived as something that can bring life, mm-hmm. sometimes monstrous life, sometimes yeah. life that shouldn't exist. Um, there's a line in Frankenstein that's like, if I create a bride for this Frankenstein, will it, will it bring a new race of demons into the world? Um, so there's a, there's a lot that, uh, that people have written about the, the, the problematics of the feminine monster. Yeah. Um. But but that's not really brought up here that either no, they're just dead. not interested in having kids or the there's there's no question of like if if there could there be undead right. children. Right. 
They'll just adopt, David. It's Victorian England. A lot of kids die. A lot of kids die. <laughs> also, I want to address, you know, this is the first digital stop motion animation film. So they could look at dailies instantly. They could see what the picture would look like on their screen. And as a result, they also had a lot of digital post-production. So like the veil was in some shots digital, in some shots real. Yeah, and I know we talked about Coraline before this, but Coraline, um, you know, comes out uh, a couple years after Corpse Bride chronologically, um, and that one used a ton of digital uh, effects um, along with the the traditional stop motion. But I, doesn't it sort of distort the the original intention of stop motion to have have <laughs> this digital filmmaking? Uh, you know, it, it used to be the idea of the real, the actual physical uh, pieces of, you know, the, the physical bodies of these toys that are being manipulated and moved. Um, you know, it's it's like the the ontology of the photographic image by Andre Bazin, you know, the objectif, the, that we're, we're capturing something real with film because it's a chemical process. I mean, like, yeah, like, I, I think that is definitely an appeal to stop motion over traditional animation is that... You know, we know that it was in a room somewhere, you know, like that there were people moving this around and that if I went to a warehouse somewhere, I could touch all of these things, right. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that definitely is, there is an appeal to that and there's an appeal to, um, like there's a texture to it that isn't there in traditional animation, I think. Right. I, I, I think that the use of digital... Um, enhancement around this it, it might lose a little bit of that but I think the people who are doing the enhancement you know are very aware of what the goal of the medium is well I think let's just to skip ahead a little bit as we get further away from the the original way that it was made I think we see this even more so in 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 Corpse Bride yes there's some digital filmmaking going on there's some CGI included there's some digital compositing, there's some green screen, a little bit here and there. And it's, of course, shot on a DSLR ca uh, camera. Uh, I think it was a, a Canon EOS 1D. Um, and so, but but then in Coraline, yeah, the 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 filmmaking is is digital. And the, the Coraline faces, they're sculpted at first, but then they're scanned into a computer. They're turned into a 3D model. And then they 3D print. 800,000, you know, variations on a single face. And then they print, they 3D print them out and then swap them. And then they put it back into a digital camera where then they remove the seam lines from the face digitally to kind of smooth everything out and make it look, you know, digitally smooth and good and contiguous. So you're removing all of the physicality of the faces that was clearly present on Jack Skellington. In favor of more expression, sure, but it's it loses that uncanniness and the, the right. roughness of... Like of, you're almost losing the fingerprint in the clay, you know, metaphorically. <laughs> right, but I mean, not only are you losing the metaphoric, you know, fingerprint in the clay, you're also losing... You're you're losing even the illusion that it's, that it's uh, you know, not digital, that it's real, that it could exist in the world, Uh I think I think you do lose it to an extent, and then by the time you get to Paranorman, even the coloring is done. Yeah, uh, is done through the three D printer. Yeah, and you know it, it just becomes a sort of like where does it 
where does it and then in paranorman you also have so much digital compositing going on because there are ghosts and they're partially see-through and they have green auras and it's like at what point okay so what we're doing is we're taking a, a physical sculpture scanning it into a computer printing it back out and then taking a picture on a digital camera putting it back into a computer and then digitally compositing it so yeah. we're we're making the transition from the digital to the real like four times every right. frame isn't that like kind of a a, a, a mind fuck <laughs> But I mean, I feel like that's what a lot of modern movie making is, you know, like there's there's as much digital enhancement on that as there is in, you know, your average action flick that you see. at the theater. Right. And of course, a, a 3D digitally computer animated movie is right. entirely digital and there's no transition. It's entirely simulated. Right. And that's fine. But I'm just saying, like, then, you know, if there's this many sort of. Uh, medium shifts between the real and the digital, mm -hmm. uh, the real and the virtual, I guess. Uh, what is to distinguish it from uh, from from VFX, from CGI? Right. What is to distinguish it? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting point, especially at this point when, you know, CGI has evolved to the point where doing textures in, like, completely computer-generated forms, they can do it really well. Right, they can do it pretty well. And they can do light effects really well. Yeah. I mean, the, the early, you know, the, the Tim Burton style of stop motion is largely defined by this very, like, German expressionist looking lighting that's sort of borrowed from the early Universal movie monsters, where Jack Skellington, his shadows are more expressive than he is, even. And they're big shadows and very, like, hard shadows. Right. Lots of hard and soft, not hard and soft light, hard light transitions. You know, it's dark over yeah. there, it's light over the, here. The, the, the chiaroscuro, or I'm Ooh. sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but it's, you're, it's you're this kind of... You're pulling out all the, the fancy film school lingo in this one. I love it. <laughs> Getting learned. Yeah. <laughs> um... I want to I want to share anything that I've kind of picked up. Yeah, no, with, I love it. Guys. I love it. So if that's gone, if that's missing now, and and you know we might as well just go to digital light. We might as well just go to digital dust particles floating in the wind and digital right. digital textures. And you know when I saw the Lego Movie, I was not a hundred percent sure that it wasn't stop motion. Yeah. It was not stop motion, but I but I thought maybe it could be because it's it's animated to reflect that style. Like there's a, just enough jerkiness to it, and there's just enough weight to all of the characters, um, you know, that you you get a sense that like this might be <laughs> real, you know. Right. This might exist. Yeah. Um, but 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 at the end of the day, we know it doesn't. Yeah. And at the end of the day. We know that there are actually these seam lines on Coraline's face right. that that you you can get rid of them, but we 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 see that there's digital digital effects right, going right. on, or maybe we don't see it, but we know it. It's you know in the same way they were digitally remove all the hair off of women in movies, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, everything everything has a smoothness to it in the digital age in the. In this current decade we live in, right. everything's too smooth. The smoothing so, of culture, the smoothing of politics, <laughs> the smoothing of of humanity. Yeah. Um, I I there's you know so we've got a a, a whole list of stop motion films uh, in our notes doc, and I noticed that Fantastic Mr. Fox is on here, which is a Wes Anderson um, production. 
Um, and this, you know, is certainly not done with clay. There's in fact a lot of, um, there's a lot of faux taxidermy sort of fake. Right. There's, there's a lot of fur to it and it, and, you know, thinking to the Isle of dogs, which, what did that come out in 2018? Someone like that, um, you know, like that, another one that has a lot of like fur and like movement to that fur. And I feel like but less movement to the fur than can be done in CGI. Absolutely. Now. And less realistic. Absolutely. Fur than can be done in CGI. But I think it's interesting that, you know, while sort of clay doll looking um, stuff has has sort of mm-hmm. made this transition towards um you know looking more and more cgi and looking more and more smooth and less rough the the wes anderson produced films um they definitely still have a lot of that jerkiness and uh piecemealness to them like uh you you even see it with the character models you know if someone is naked it, it still looks like there's a head in a socket and like arms in a socket they still look like dolls um, in a sense. Right. Yeah. Um, Halberstam, I'm not going to go into the whole analysis of it because it's not very Halloween-y, uh-huh. but Halberstam identifies uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox as like the most queer friendly <laughs> uh, uh, stop motion animated film you yeah. know, that, that he had seen up to that point. Interesting. Um, yeah. Just, so just, yeah, check out his book, Queer Art of Failure. Um, the, the thesis statement is kind of like, like, the queer art of failure involves the acceptance of the finite, the embrace of the absurd, the silly, and the hopelessly goofy. And I think that that's something we all need. Yeah. Uh, it opens with a passage from SpongeBob. <laughs> it, it's 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 very fun. It's a very fun, readable book. I, I'm I'm gonna order it right now. This sounds great. Yeah, but so it's it's interesting that. I, I think what you were saying ultimately about the digital um, sort of smoothing everything, it's almost taking some of the monstrousness from these monster films. Right. In a way. Because it's just, it's just, you know, it's pixels on a screen printed out. You know, it might as well be, yeah, it might as well be a 3D printed model of a, uh, of, of a head that you just made in your own. You, you know, right. it's something that you can do now. We've, we've, We've taken 3D printing and we've made it everywhere. Right. Um, it's a part of industrial processes now. It's a part of capitalism. Right. So it almost, uh, whatchamacallit, like, in the same way that, you know, like, puppetry, as it becomes more and more digital, it becomes slightly less uncanny. Um, I, right. I think, you know, this is all becoming less and less uncanny. And so I think, you know, we'll probably continue to see monster movies made in this style um but you know we haven't really had a monster stop motion movie since like what 2012 uh yeah basically i mean you could say that there are monsters in like the box and the two (laughs) screens right but it's uh, two strings right but that's that's more uh, like adventure fantasy than it is uh you know horror i mean it's sort of merging with any other kind of animation it's it's sort of because, and and of course Ardman Studios has always has never been beholden to all Christmas or all Halloween. Right. That's a purely American concept. Right. So, so part of this is the globalization of of stop motion animation as well. I although I do want to say sort of to contrast Paranorman with the film that came out the same year from Tim Burton Frankenweenie, which like we said is a remake of of his original film in the style that he would have wanted to make it. That these are are not face swaps that he's doing for these characters 
and and it wasn't for Corpse Bride either. They are all extremely intricate puppet machines mm. that are being adjusted like manually to make different stretchy face shapes. Hmm. Um, you know. That, that, that are slightly different from the previous one. Mm-hmm. And they do some of that in Paranorman as well, especially with the zombie characters. Okay. But but all of the, um, you know, all of the main characters are these face-swapping, uh, you know, more or less CG characters. And so I think there is something fundamentally different that the Frankenweenie dog, who is not a weenie dog. No. Did you notice yeah, that? Yeah, it's not a wiener dog. He looks like a bull terrier, right? He's And he is a bull terrier in the original live Yeah, action. no, he, he is just a bull terrier. He's not a weenie Not a weenie. But he is a robot, a machine, a a puppet that can be just minutely changed to, to move the eyes around and to squeeze the different parts to make different shapes. So I think there is something still very viscerally appealing about that style as compared to the face swapping. I'm not sure. Maybe other people would disagree with me that they like it smooth. Maybe people like smooth. Tell us uh, tell us what you guys like. Tweet at us at Talking Tropes to tell us, do you like your horror smooth or do you like it, it gritty and real? What what kind of horror fan are you? What kind of stop motion fan are you? Uh, do you? Do you like these movies? Right. Do you think that this is, that you're glad this is over maybe? That, that you're glad that there's no more spooky uh, stop motion and, that's, and that stop motion has entered the realm of the mythic and and the, the mundane and the mundane and all these things and that that it almost looks like CGI but there's there's you can still tell that it's real just because of the way that things look are you a Harryhausen guy who wants more uh more skeletons more clay skeletons in your action movies more skeletons all the time right oh yeah we didn't really bring up like the fact that <laughs> that uh you know Tim Burton loves his Ray Harryhausen yeah, uh, you know he loves those skeletons attacking the Argonauts in that one movie. So <laughs> he likes skeletons, skeletons because skeletons were yeah. stop motion, not yeah. the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I mean that's all. That's all I've got. Any final words or thoughts, David? Um, I, I think we've pretty much covered it. Oh, I guess we should say about Paranorman since we brought it up that yeah. Um, neither Selig nor Tim Burton yeah. worked on that, but the, uh, one of the directors of it, Chris Butler also worked on Corpse Bride and Coraline, I think as a storyboard, uh, artist. So, so, you know, has worked with both Selig and, uh, Burton. Right. So there, it's all, that's the thing about like American stop motion animation is it like almost doesn't exist. It is such a small niche group that it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's nice to give them the props that they deserve because they so do many people that a ton of great these. work, but it's almost all unrecognized. Um, <laughs> so, life. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, support your stop motion animators, support them, love them. They're not all, you know, um, what's his name from Parks and Rec? <laughs> yeah, Ben Wyatt. Ben Wyatt making <laughs> Requiem for a Tuesday Depression. was a. <laughs> Right. Yep. Yep. Making depression stop motion in uh, in their <laughs> living rooms. Uh, so uh, on that note, have a happy Halloween. Have a spooky, spooky Halloween where you don't trick or treat. <laughs> don't trick or treat, guys. And don't forget to vote. Right. <laughs> don't trick or treat and do vote. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.
militant communism for everyone. <laughs>